trying to understand what a proper economic structure is, a proper theology of work, it happens really within the context of a fraternal economy or what some popes have called a gift economy. But we just need to recognize that money actually totally transforms our relationships. And in some cases, you just need to keep uh, far from it. Hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin and this is Gospel Simplicity, a place where we seek to bring simplicity out of theological and historical complexity. Today we are talking about something that impacts all of us. We're talking about work and money and just how profoundly we often misunderstand these things, not just in our culture, but in our churches as well. And I'm joined by none other than Dr. Jacob Imam, who you might know from his show, New Polity. We had a fascinating discussion and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Well, Dr. Jacob Imam, thank you so much for joining me today. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. And I, I first came across your work from an interview you did with Matt Farad on Pints with Aquinas, this really small YouTube channel that a couple people in my audience might have heard of once or twice. Um, and it was about friendship. And it was such a refreshing episode. But what really caught my attention was your vision of building Christian communities and what you're up to in Steubenville. And I have to say, just as an aside, I was listening to that episode with my wife. And the other day we were driving through this like dilapidated part of town. And since listening to that, she said like, man, the Catholics need to move here <laughs> after hearing what you guys are doing in Steubenville. So just shout out to you guys for that. But talk to me a little bit about what you guys are up to in Steubenville, your vision of a Christian community and, and all of that. Yeah, you know what? We really do believe that when Christ declares himself king, that that really has major implications for the way that we live and that when we have a new relationship as subject to monarch to king that changes your relationship citizen uh, to citizen as well and that this kingdom that christ does uh, bring to the earth and is bringing to this earth uh, certainly comes uh, first and foremost in and through our hearts but it manifests itself visibly powerfully uh, in the world and so we are trying to uh, change uh, our hearts by the help of his grace and as a result of changing our um, beliefs and behaviors it's also manifesting and changing our the pattern and the order of our city as well so when i converted uh, to catholicism i say that i was um, so excited uh, to have this intimate relationship with with jesus christ um, but i was tired of just kind of going the mass every day and praying you know every day but wanted to be a, a, a real christian more than just an hour or so a day and that is the gift that the church has given us in catholic social teaching um, where our whole lives can be reformed uh, to better image the the very likeness of, of christ himself and um, and to manifest it in in this world and so um, we uh, move from a city that had kind of its structures well in place to a dilapidated Rust Belt town where there was hardly any structures to be spoken of. And we've been trying to build new businesses that um, better reflect the the principles that the church has um, 
taught us to to build with uh so again to better reflect god's god's glory to the world and to let that be a, a shining light to to those who are yet unbaptized um so we're building things like um you know mon mundane things like breweries more fun things like um farm to shelves grocery stores and uh and a, and a new college that simultaneously uh, trains people in the uh, Catholic intellectual tradition, as well as the skilled trades, and um, so as to graduate from college financially net positive instead of up to their eyeballs in debt, um, as as too often happens today. And so, from kind of the heights of the theoretical, we we get pretty down and dirty into the practical as well. I love that. There's so much I could follow up on here, and we may follow up on a couple things. One, I can imagine many of my viewers saying, I'm not sure breweries are mundane, but I'll just leave that uh, to, to those people to decide. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, but one sure. thing I thought was really interesting, you mentioned kind of taking these principles of Catholic social teaching as you're thinking about what it means to kind of build the, the kingdom of God there in, in your local area. And I think for a lot of my viewers, they may be familiar with certain aspects of Catholic social teaching, right? Like certainly they probably know that the Catholic Church is very pro-life or they've gone through other mm -hmm. areas. But I think specifically when it comes to like a theology of work mm -hmm. and community building, it's an area of Catholic social teaching that I think is very rich, but perhaps untapped for a lot of people. So what are some of those principles that you're following that you're keeping in mind as you're thinking about these different projects, whether it's building farms, breweries, or a college? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I think it's it's like the million dollar question. Um, work has had such a different meaning throughout the years. I mean, if you go back and look at pagan societies prior to Christ, it doesn't matter which one you look at. Um, work is always considered to be a sign of servitude. It's it's real drudgery. It's toil. Um, the Atrahasis, which is this Akkadian creation myth, actually begins with that when the gods uh, were 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 um, bound by their drudgery, and that they did the work instead of men. Um, that the thing that divides the divine from humanity is not some overarching understanding of transcendence, but um, but but actually who has the power to um, work or command others to work. Um, Aristotle understood work to be demeaning, and that's why we have slaves. Cicero, uh, too, thought that the craftsman was a, was a vile art. Um, so when Jesus Christ, the word become flesh, uh, picked up a hammer and spent most of his life at the carpenter's bench, it absolutely was political dynamite in the face of all these um, pagan religions. And so when we are kind of converting out of a post-Christian society and trying to, you know, welcome Christ more truly into our hearts and 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 beg his his help and in, in, in becoming better images of him. A lot of that actually has to do with rolling up our sleeves and, and getting to work uh, ourselves. And so I think that's, you know, a big side of this is that in our humility, we actually have to uh, become hidden workers um, again. I, I think that a big, big emphasis that you find throughout Catholic social um, teaching is in the under proper understanding of um, the cosmic order itself, that that love is not just the thing that should define um, Christi Christians, but it actually is the thing that defines the universe itself. That, that all of creation is one gift from God and that all of our interactions happen 
within that context of givenness, of gratuity. Um, and so when, when we're trying to understand what a proper economic structure is, a proper theology of work, it happens really within the context of a fraternal economy or what some popes have called a gift economy, which might sound sentimental or even naive, um, but it's properly ontological and it's real and it's something that we need to um, recognize that we are first and foremost called to enter into the Holy Trinity uh, who is declared to be love itself. Um, and so as the more that um, we can start to pattern our work in a way that is self-giving, uh, cruelly edifying for, for our neighbors, uh, then then we're on the right track. Um, so so much, our, our current society is dominated by mammon. I mean, just everything is for sale today. I mean, there's just there's nothing that doesn't have a price tag on it, um, pretty much. And, and then yet there's this old Catholic principle that money takes the place for where love lacks. Um, and you can think about it really simply, such as um, I can either call up a moving company to help me move my piano, or I could call friends that I am dependent upon other people in either situation um, that but in one case I am using the currency of money and the other the currency of love um, one there is uh, alienation where I don't know the people that are helping me the other um, they're very active helping me is what is further binding us uh, together and so when we are trying to can prioritize a true fraternity in our economy and and in our work um that that there is that priority of love of understanding that obviously there are plenty of great occasions to use money um but are we utilizing um money in a way that it becomes ubiquitous throughout society and and thus um pushing away the opportunities for self-giving in the ways that uh, really, really it should. And so when St. Thomas Aquinas is commenting on uh, St. Paul's great verse that the love of money is the root of all evils, he says it's not the love of money in and of itself, as if you're just trying to accumulate more and more and more as the real problem. It's really when you're trying to use money as a means for everything uh, that that is the problem there, um, that it that it's takes away the opportunity for love, which of course is our end. And so it's a root of all sorts of sin. Uh, I think these are some of the, you know, the first principles of like the goodness of manual work and the priority of love that um, that really defines um, the shape of the of the human economy in a, in a way that uh, that again better reflects the Holy Trinity Himself. Yeah, there's so much to get into there, and we will as this interview goes on. I want to talk specifically about kind of a theology of work and money. But before we Great. get there, you mentioned that we live in this society that's dominated by mammon today. And I think when people hear you talking about kind of the fundamental order of the cosmos being love and this gift economy and, you know, having friends help you move rather than paying for it and expanding that out into kind of all areas of the economy, at least as far as we can, it's a compelling yep. picture, but it's also very far from where we're at today. Like you said, it, money dominates everything. It's just kind of the waters we're swimming in. I'd be curious, you know, before we get into kind of more of maybe some of the solutions and some of the ways in which we can be rethinking this, how did we get where we are today? If we went from kind of this pagan view of work being a bad thing, whether we're going all the way back to like the ancient Near East or to, you know, Greek and Roman society, but then you know, at least yeah. theoretically, we have this rise of Christendom where we should be doing something different 
And now we're living in a time kind of post Christendom in many ways where the economy you're talking about, there's this compelling picture of a gift economy and one kind of marked by Catholic social teaching is just completely foreign to us. And even I think those within the church are unfamiliar with these elements of the Christian tr tradition. So how, how did we get where we are today with our view of work and money? You know, the history is fascinating. I, there's so many nuances and, and major moments that come out throughout it. But I think the the largest and most important part of it is that you cannot have the goods of Christ, the real benefits of Christendom as, as it once was, and then maybe recapitulated again in our current age without Christ himself. I mean, it's not just that he brought new ideas and said, like, opened up our minds, but he actually gave us the power to open up our hearts to actually live differently. This is the the real grace of the sacraments that they they do enable us. They empower us uh, to to live differently. And so when people always default to, uh, well, natural law can probably sort us out again and, and give us a vector of, of the ways in which we should be tending. I always think to myself, well, in some regard, yeah, absolutely. That's true. I mean, many uh, authorities in the church have uh, said that if we had not fallen, we would have only needed the book of nature to be able to know God. But we're not there anymore. Um, we do. We needed the extra help. We needed special revelation too. Uh, but even more than that, we can't do this just by ideas alone. We need to do this by the very person of Jesus. And so there's just no hope um, without him. And so I think that the the narrative of the decline of Christendom is just a one that's marked by a apostasy, uh, moving away from Christ and away from His Church, uh, which is the, His very dwelling. So I, I really do think that that is the narrative, and we can kind of go through. I think this this history is very fascinating, but maybe that that's for a, for a different time. This video is brought to you in part by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is an organization of Christian counselors that exists to help you get the help you need. You can find them by going to faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity. And when you use that link, which you can find in the description down below, you will get 10% off your first month and they'll pair you up with a licensed mental health counselor in under 48 hours. Once you've been paired up with a counselor, you can reach them via instant message, phone call, video call, and more. I think you will really enjoy this, and I think it could be the first step on your journey to greater mental health. And mental health problems affect all of us, religious, non-religious, old, young, every demographic feels the weight of mental health. But there are resources available, and you don't need to go through this alone, which is why I encourage you to reach out to the amazing people at Faithful Counseling by using that link, faithfulcounseling.com slash gospel simplicity, and taking your first step towards healing and wholeness in your mental health. Yeah, I'm sure you can go through the history at quite a length. I believe that was kind of part of your PhD work, if I'm correct, right? Looking through kind of no, like medieval, but, or no? Um, okay. But Andrew Jones, who's my colleague. Ah, okay. Is, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I do have just one kind of biographical question for you as you talk mm -hmm. about the importance of like the, the church and the sacraments and really reimagining not just like our own lives, but in economies, right? And in the world uh, as a whole there, right? that we can't have the goods of Christendom without Christ himself. I'd be curious, just, you know, obviously this is a topic you're very interested in now, work, money, et cetera, how we think about those things. Yeah. Did that happen prior to your conversion to Catholicism 
as though like you were interested in these things and then you found Catholicism as kind of the answer to these questions? Or was it you were interested in the Catholic Church and then as you went deeper into that, you discovered that there's this richness of teaching that maybe you weren't aware of? I'd just be curious kind of what, what came first for you. Yeah, it was definitely the latter for me. I um, I was raised by a, kind of a liberal Muslim father and a happy evangelical mother. And um, just some point, as a lot of people do, I uh, came to have a real... Um, conviction that I had sinned. And so I needed some sort of real help. And I kind of turned to my father's um, God first. And there was kind of nothing but do better, try harder, where there was a real substantial, um, you know, answer to this problem of sin, a description of it that actually went even deeper, that was, that made my sin out to be even more vile um, and and horrible uh, than I had even thought it was, and, and finding a real solution to that in in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, and I just fell in love with him and wanted the more and more intimacy with, with him. And so I, I say that if anybody wants a, a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, you can't find a more intimate relationship with him than in the Catholic Church. Church. Um, and so, uh, so I was, I was received into the church. And um, then as I kind of came to know this deep treasury, this, this vast treasure uh, that, uh, that she has of, of ways of knowing him more and, and finding that greater intimacy with him, I discovered Catholic social teaching. And, um, and that pretty, that rocked my world. My dad was uh, in finance for his whole career. He taught me how to invest from a very early age. Uh, it was it just dominated our our life. And so when um, I finally was at a place where I thought, you know, this is this is kind of strange that I haven't really heard too much about money uh, and finance coming out of the church. It was uh, it was kind of these extraordinary moments where I realized that well, Christ certainly claims that too. But what is it? And so it became. It was certainly an academic project, um, but it was uh, as all academic projects should be. It should it should also have a, a real sway over your life um, too. And so, as I um, can went back into the tradition and and found these things and discovered for me, um, found them for the first time. Um, what was kind of the mainstream of the church for ages. Um, it, it really rocked my world and we had to, I had to change a lot all throughout it. So it was definitely something that was um, not a question that was uh, I, like really like nagging at my heart, um, but I just thought it was a void. And when I discovered it, I thought, wow, I, there's a lot of me that needs to change. <laughs> Yeah, and I bet that was a, a jarring experience because few things hit home as much as our money, uh, at least for many of us, because it's become so central to our lives. And that's why we get so uncomfortable when churches start talking about finances and everyone just kind of begins to get on guard. But I think it's something we need to do and do well. But speaking yeah. of kind of voids in teaching, one thing yeah. that your work has helped kind of highlight to me is those all of the years of Jesus' life spent at a carpenter's bench. It's something that mm. I didn't ever really grow up considering. And perhaps it's by just the nature of it's not, you know, when we get the Gospels, we're getting a very small window of Jesus' life for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. But we do have this knowledge that he worked as a, a carpenter, and we don't often do much with that, at least in the tradition I grew up in. It was just kind of like a passing fun fact that you happen to know about Jesus. But you, you pull out that there's actually 
there's there's major takeaways we should have from Jesus life as a as a tradesman. So what what should we kind of deduce from this? What what should we take away as the importance of work when we think about Jesus as a worker? Yeah, it's a great great question and I don't want to uh, kind of toss out answers too quickly because I think it's a point of um, that could be taken for very deep reflection for a very long time. And so that would be the first thing I kind of encourage people to do. That This is not because the Gospels record the, the most important um, points of Christ's life. That it, Like each sentence, each fact is so densely packed with meaning uh, that, that this is this is just one of them that we should take to prayer and, and, and to deep, deep, contemplation. Um, I think a major part of it is, is no doubt that he's coming to um, to define what true humanity is. And when we look at kind of this Aristotelian tradition, you get an understanding of the world as being intrinsically good. And so when man changes any part of it, it actually starts to degrade it. And the Christian tradition says that's that's just not the case at all. Um, in fact, when when God hands on the world and he says it's very good, it's it's interesting that he doesn't say that it's perfect. Now it becomes completed, it becomes absolutely finished, his God's own work upon the cross, and that's what Christ himself says. Um, but there's interesting is an interesting fact that God allows actually finds in the fulfillment of the world itself our participation in his own creative act um, that we can take parts of his creation and we can reform them take the forms that god created and to give them new a new nature a new meaning so um I don't mean to get too too theoretical here, but I, th- I think it's actually quite interesting that, you know, when you when you consider say a tree and you and you chop it down and you make a, a table out of it, you are you are choosing between one of two things. Like enjoying the goodness of the tree is mutually exclusive with enjoying the goodness of the table, and so there's this, that Aristotelian insight is right. You've taken away the enjoyment of one good um, for another, but you. But there's no need to say that that's bad. You can say that they're both good. And and our when God places us in the garden prior to the fall, He gives us the command to till and to commit and and to keep and to have dominion. Um, and this is the way in which we're doing that. In those words, uh, abad vashamar in in the in the Hebrew are are again used of of tilling and to keeping. Uh, the, they're again used in Le- the Levitical code to talk about the conduct of priests. That these are liturgical acts. They are temple acts, and that our work is in a true sense tr- a reception of the creation of the world and a self giving into it that begins to construct a temple in which God himself uh, can dwell and ultimately truly physically in the incarnation, um, which, which is now with us for forever. So I, I really think that this, this movement into work and this, this reformation, the giving of a new form to created matter is something that is, um, is, is absolutely um, tantalizing uh, to consider and that Christ 
did it himself and is showing us a, a true way is is very interesting it's very it's it's shocking too to kind of consider that that Christ didn't come as a farmer whereas you think that a farmer is nurturing the very form of the created world uh, that God created a carpenter transforms it uh, and so he he goes a step further than the archetype the archetypical worker of Adam and shows us the archetypical work of the new Adam is in that, is in that transformation. Um, so I, I think there's anyways, a, a number of very deep points of, of consideration. I'll just, um, for us to consider with our own work. Um, but that, but I think I'll, I'll just kind of end with this last point is that, um, the command to till and to keep and the command to have dominion is given exclusively to humanity. It's not given to the animals. They may uh, be fruitful and multiply um, as we are, but they do not work as, as we work. Um, Pope St. John Paul II says that only humanity works. Uh, you might think of like a beaver having building its dam or a bird building its nest. Um, but what work truly is, is a rational act where you have a concept in your mind, a new form that you then engender in the material world. You are actually taking a spiritual power and you manifesting it in matter itself. And so in that regard, there is a wedding that's happening between heaven and earth and that creativity comes as is a manifestation of God's own, um, God's own power. Like we do it in, in such a such a lame way compared to Him, uh, but but a real participatory way, um, as He does. And and there there is something true about the human act becoming more human, the more creative that it is. And, and a lot of us today think about creativity as something that is kind of innate, that we're just like born, um, born with some sort of creative power. And we're certainly born with some creative potential, but you only develop to become more creative, the more hard work and the hard study that you do. So somebody that's just starting off as a carpenter is not going to do phenomenal work that everybody gawks over. Uh, after years and years and years of studying what other people have done, of trying it out himself, then he's going to be able to push the bounds, the creative bounds even further, uh, making the capacity, making his own work even more creative and thus more human and thus more of a true participation um, in God. And so anyways, there's, there's just, uh, I think, a million things that we could think of in terms of um, uh, you, you know, a real divine-like spark in our work that only humanity is capable of. Um, and then we can kind of compare it also to uh, our, our modern day economy and our, the modern ways in which we're working and asking whether or not we're setting ourselves up to flourish that way. Um, but but the principle of of Christ revealing humanity as a as carpenter, um, you know, must still um, kind of be our nor north star, our, our lodestar in, in, in the base of all this reflection. We'll be right back to the episode, but first I want to say thanks to my patrons, subscribers, and merch buyers who make these episodes possible, especially to my patrons who give monthly to help the channel keep going and growing. Thank you all so, so much. And if you're interested in seeing this channel continue to grow and perhaps allowing me to invest more time in it to scale up the content that's coming out of it, then do consider becoming a patron. You can do so at patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. You'll get a host of fun perks from discounts on merch 
merch, early access to interviews, exclusive access to academic content, and perhaps my favorite thing, the Gospel Simplicity Inside Circle Book Club, where we read classic patristic texts together with people from all over the world and learn from those who have gone before us. So if you want to support the show and get all kinds of cool perks, go to patreon.com slash gospel simplicity. There's so much there. Something that people might notice as you're talking is a lot of the kind of imagery that we're using of transforming the material world and and tilling and harvesting, all of these things, they're not things that are necessarily really easy to map onto maybe our lived experience of work. Now, I Mm. imagine some people in my audience work in kind of a blue collar trade in which every day they're working with the material world and they're transforming things. But if we go back to the conversation we had just before we went live, you referred that, you know, you could only hear me as a disembodied voice. And I think a lot of people feel that way (laughs) kind of in their own work, right? That they don't actually work on things. They work in these abstractions for larger abstractions and they're not really sure what to what end they really work it's just one part of a large cog in a machine and there's not a lot of kind of connection to transforming anything or or seeing something go from you know one material to another and thinking creatively and beautifully i think it appeals to people but when they think about their work in accounting or their work in podcasting or whatever it may be it's hard to make that connection and so What would you say for those people that find themselves in a more white collar setting, if you will, about how we can think theologically about our work when we're not working with something as tangible as a piece of wood or a plot of land? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. I I would say a couple of things, actually. One is that there is a real formation that happens through ideas. So, so, um, when when we talk about a thing's nature, it comes, a nature is derived from a thing's formal cause. So it's the form of, of a thing. Um, and the, but when it pertains to ideas, the form of an, an idea is its content. So if I'm thinking about like the, the, the size of a building, say, then, then the, the nature of that idea is it's space, you know, it's, it's the content of it. And there's real transformation that's done, whether you're like an engineer, you know, um, making that formational change, or if you're an academic, synthetically bringing new ideas uh, together to be able to develop uh, doctrine and develop thinking. Um, so that really happens, no doubt about it. But there is a lot of white collar work that is absolutely totally demeaning. Uh, and that w- there has been this kind of crazy lie that that we've bought, all of us has bought, I mean, myself included have bought, um, where we have thought of blue collar work as lesser and there's reasons for that and and which i think is probably helpful to go into um in a moment uh but we've thought that just because i'm doing this at a desk that this is more dignified but a lot of what we're doing is uh a lot of us in management are just kind of pushing things forward and there's not really a clear idea of the purposiveness what's the real purpose of our work and uh as a result that's to help that means that we're losing not only motivation but actually our capacity to be more creative in our role to be able to again kind of synthetically bring different ideas together to help push it forward to the end that we're seeking um so i i mean i i think that you know there that is just what john paul ii calls toil 
and there's many different occupations, a lot of them blue collar, um, that are toilsome. Um, and that's just a cross that a lot of us have to bear in, in the modern um, in the modern period. And a lot of people had to bear in the ancient period, obviously, too. That's just it's just, you know, with us. Um, and and I think that giving that up, like actually really offering that up in suffering is um, is necessary. So I don't want to. I don't want to be too harsh on this. And obviously there's plenty of nuance that you can give positive um, ideas to it as well. Um, but at the same time, I, we have to be realistic about where our um, market economy is today. And a lot of it is developed out of, um, out of, a uh, um, forgetting, you know, Christianity and forgetting Christ. Um, John Paul II says that work is always uh, transitive, that there's always a subject working on an object. And he says what defines the Western economy um, so much today is that we have prioritized the objects that we are building more than the subjects who are building. And uh, that is a total reversal of the natural order of, of the world and how things should be because it is ultimately that those subjects that we're trying to dignify and it is ultimately those subjects whom we're trying to help get to heaven. And so the objects matter um, very little next to that. And, and a big error um, in the way that we've designed our work today has been more about products rather than persons. That distinction between kind of work and toil interests me. And I'd also mm -hmm. be curious for people who find themselves in a job that feels more toilsome than something that's mm -hmm. driven, like purpose-driven work. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, I'd like to just kind of double-click on what the definition of toil, what, what we mean there. I think the idea of work having kind of the transitive sure. uh, nature is helpful, and maybe it's the inverse for toil. But also for people that say, like, yep, toil, that's going to describe what I do, is <laughs> the... Yeah. It, it, is kind of the proper response to that for them. I imagine there's a lot of context here, right? But is it to try to find purpose in the midst of toil or to say like this toil really is purposeless and that's kind of the cross I'm going to bear? Or is it mm -hmm. try to get out of that toil as fast as you can and do something else? I'd be curious kind of on like a practical level if people are saying toil, that's me, I can check that box. What do they do with that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think to toil ultimately defines um, some form of labor that does not build up your own dignity, um, that does not, that makes you more in terms of the type of a, of a cog in a vast machine rather than a human exercising uh, and developing your creative capacity. Um, and that's, and that's also um, uh, defined by being dominated by others, that you're forced into a role uh, that is answerable to another man that just wants objects and, and doesn't care about your subjects as well. Um, and and that's, that's just a reality that's always existed and, and is a huge narrative throughout the Old Testament. Obviously, Pharaoh is, is the archetypical tyrant that um, that sets us up in that way but I, but I would say too that we can't just blame individuals we also have to blame ourselves that we have um, collectively built up institutions in our society that have prioritized objects over subjects I mean we all do this uh, we can't just point to the elites and say it's their fault um, we have allowed them to do this so um, so we we all have to go to the confession and we all have to um, <laughs> repent of this and I I don't I think that there um, <clears throat> within within toil we could um, we could certainly find um, the the silver linings 
in in our jobs and and that's probably quite helpful um to do but i would never um think that it would be proper to just live in that pretense you know where where we're just believing that well there is this aspect of it that's good and therefore it is good uh, and therefore it, this is all fine i i don't think that that's that's helpful psychologically it's also just wrong morally <laughs> and so there's um uh and so i i would say that that silver lining is something that um again you like hold on to um, but don't define the work by it if, if it truly is toil. Um, and I would offer that up. I would say, Lord, help me unite with Christ in, in his own sufferings here. Um, but also give me a path, you know, by which I could, um, I, I might be able to transition. Like just up and quitting your job is, is not an option for hardly anybody uh, these days. Like we're in these roles for a reason. We have to be able to provide for our families and such. Um, but I would say making real real prayers in earnest, fasting also um, for the social train change um, that we have participated in building um, is is kind of requisite on all of us today. Like we all, we all have this sort of collective prayer and fasting that we have to do, um, asking, asking the Lord to, um, you know, see us, you know, under the fig tree crying out and, and to rec- rescue us um, as he uh, so longs to do. So I want to get at perhaps a little tension here that some people might be feeling. On the one end, there's yeah. the kind of lived reality of you have maybe certain family obligations, you have your rent to pay, your mortgage to pay, whatever it is, right? Yeah, like yeah. You, you need this money um, yep. for better or worse because of the way that our society and maybe the decisions we've also made of kind of different lifestyle things, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but up and quitting, as you said, just isn't an option for most people. But you mm-hmm. also mentioned that there can be kind of a, a moral wrong in just kind of only taking the silver lining and kind of uh, perhaps like deluding ourselves into thinking that what we're doing is actually good when it's perhaps like on a larger moral scale, not good. And maybe to flesh this out a bit more, I'm thinking of someone who perhaps they work for like a major titan of industry, whether that's like an Apple, a meta or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And they feel that in their day-to-day role they're not like actively participating in some direct evil but they feel like maybe there is this tension between what that company is doing like this kind of more remote evil removed from them um, and how their role might contribute to something like that and so i could imagine them feeling this tension of on the one hand it's not possible just up and quit but if what i'm doing is in some way at least remotely morally wrong like what what am i supposed to do with that because does in what way does that take precedence over some of my more kind of monetary desires? I know that's a complicated question, but for people who are kind of wrestling between the, the moral nature yeah. of their work and the kind of practical concerns, what could we say there? Yeah, I, I don't mean to escape a hard question, but um, what I think is helpful from at least academic advantage is giving the principles that the, that the church has, has given. Um, but these kind of personal decisions really have to be made at a pastoral level, which means some sort of personal knowledge. So I'm not going to enter into, into that um, because I'm not actually even capable of doing that. Um, but I will say, I will say this first, a few things, three things. First, um, um, when I was trying to say that there might be some good to it um, and that we, but we shouldn't get carried away and then defining our careers based upon that good. Um, 
that was a moral problem precisely because you're never going to find anything in this life that is uh, totally and absolutely evil. Uh, evil is always a privation upon a good. That There is always some semblance of, of good in anything that exists. And so we will always be able to find, you know, something positive to say. We could even say something positive about Satan himself uh, insofar as that he has an angelic nature. Um, <coughs> so, so that's uh, what I mean th by that, that we will always be able to see, see a good, but just because there is some good does not mean that the structure itself should be uh, baptized, transformed by Christ I see. Um, himself. So I think that's a, that, that's um, perhaps gives more nuance or clarity to, to what I was trying to say prior. Um, I also say that if, if you do find yourself in a place of remote cooperation and, and um, uh, or, and it's getting ever nearer, um, to um, more direct cooperation in, in something that is actively stripping others away from their dignity, then you have to get out. You don't have a choice in, in that. And, um, and that you, but those are people who usually have some more financial um, uh, stability um, and uh, ability to pivot um, is that, that Christ, it does ask us to, uh, to leave everything and to follow him. And if, if you are um, in a job that is actively dehumanizing others, then you just need to leave it. For those who are kind of stuck uh, in a place that's less financially um, uh, uh, malleable, I, I suppose, then, <clears throat> then it just becomes a really tougher question that I think needs to be addressed with a, um, with, with a pastor. But you know, we, we've created a lot of um, structures that inhibit our ability to give the gift of self to others. These are structures that um, just like to name out a few examples really quickly, like we could say insurance is one of those that we, you know, if some disaster happens, it would be better. It would be superior if our communities just rallied around together and took care of the person that is in need. We are not structured to do that anymore. So very few of us even know our neighbors anymore. I mean, it's really devastating. And so to be able to just up and quit insurance is, um, depending on the type of it, uh, is really tough, you know? I mean, there's some great um, kind of transitions back to familiarity and to, it, such as like Samaritan Health, which I just think is luminous, um, where you're giving money directly to other persons. You don't know them, but it's their name on the check and stuff like that instead of a, a kind of the tectonic uh, structure together um, that really does inhibit your ability to give yourself personally to another. And, and structures like that, John Paul II called structures of sin. Um, and, and But retreat, like getting out of those really takes a long time. I mean, our, you know, our way of transformation of, of bringing all things back to Christ. I mean, this is a long project that we're we're undertaking. It's a 500 year project. We're not going to be able to do it overnight. And so I'd say that uh, for folks hearing this, maybe that there is like a proper patience that we have to have along with our absolute determination um, to, to, to change and to, to see, see that society transformed. Yeah. Two things. First, I really appreciate your nuance to these really complex and difficult topics, especially when it gets to a more personal level. But I think the mm -hmm. the principles that you gave there are going to be really helpful. And I also like that combination you gave there of patience, but absolute determination, because I think when we come across these issues that just seem so colossal, we can become 
convinced that like there's actually nothing I individually can do here, which is just a lie. Like there, we are able to make progress. And I think we often think that if my progress isn't measurable on a societal scale, then it's not meaningful. But I think what we want to have is that, that determination to keep going, but patience and recognizing that this isn't a thing we're going to solve overnight or in our lifetimes even. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really appreciate that. Throughout this conversation, we've naturally, I think, been talk. We've talked about work, but we've hit on money a lot because, especially in our current society, those things just kind of go hand in hand. If you asked a lot of people why they work, they would, I think, tell you if they're feeling honest, like to make money. That that's kind of why <laughs> they do what they do. And I think right. uh, the younger generations are being increasingly candid about that. Uh, when I talk with my coworkers, you know, they say they talk with their parents and, oh, they do this because of, you know, these, yeah. they like, kind of paint yeah. these reasons around it. But then when you ask them why they do what they do, they say, I do it for the paycheck, uh, which is a whole thing to get into, I suppose. But I think you know through your show uh, new polity which is great and people should definitely go listen to it um and, and read the articles i've been really challenged by so that just the depth of our misunderstandings about money as, as mm. christians not even knowing kind of our own tradition in this and really just buying into perva- pervasive like cultural trends when it comes to money that we should just try to get as much of it as we can and then try to you know do good things with it when we can what would, you know, to just kind of start on, on the money idea, what do you see as some of the most common misconceptions we have in the church when it comes to money? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I I think the one that comes to mind that you hear a lot in, in kind of churchy context is uh, that money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is. And I think that then opens up uh, a huge range of of sin for us to say, yeah, as long as I'm not totally dedicated to it, then what I'm doing with it is is fine. And um, without realizing that every new technology, and money is certainly a, a piece of technology, uh, transforms the context in which it's introduced. And so, you know, I'm, I'm one that we've already kind of pointed out that the ubiquity of money um, lends itself to easy transactions instead of uh, prolonged faithful friendships uh, over time. It really does that. And you, you see this within kind of the tribal societies that that didn't even operate by barter. I mean, this is kind of an important side that barter came second after um, after after money. Their usual narrative on that is, is actually incorrect. Um, that they start to radically change and break down um, when when money is introduced. And so in and obviously some of that is fine. Some of that is maybe even good, um, but uh, but there's a side. But we just need to recognize that money actually totally transforms our relationships, and in some cases, you just need to keep uh, far from it. So one thing that John Paul II says is that we should always have we should have the market modeled after the family and not the family on the market, whereas kind of this. Uh, commutative buying and selling uh, never or, or changing money between family members that just should not ever happen um, un- unless it's like a gift of money from one person to a, to another but you should never make a, a relationship that's that's based upon charity upon giving and receiving um, 
a true model of the Holy Trinity, uh, one that's that's predicated on buying and selling. That's that's just wrong. I, I'd say that it's so much of our society. Also, we have this phrase that say it's not about the money, which means that it's absolutely about the money. <laughs> um, that uh, I don't. I you know, it's not about the money. Uh, I. I just want it's a bit more that it reveals his honesty as if money was the thing that revealed one's honesty um that that money is kind of this this secret um tool that that unveils the true thoughts and intentions and one's um mind and one's heart and and that just really shouldn't be either that we should be able to call the bluff on that um too and say that this is this is a tool that's only good in certain contexts but it's not really a thing that that defines me or or my thought process and the pattern of my life as much so i think there's there's a number of things but we just need to be on kind of high alert that um there's an abstract um mechanism abstracting mechanism that pulls us away from reality i mean the mere fact that it uh, leads us to quantify things and turn a you know a cup of coffee into the equivalent of four dollars and it takes us away from the real qualitative uh, aspects of uh, of the things that we are enumerating uh, and that's and that's wrong and that's that's too bad like it's, it, it, we shouldn't be distracted as much as we are um, in that way um, again we should kind of you know use money as a tool sure but let it not define the the pattern of our thinking and letting the qualitative world that God truly created be the thing that that speaks to us um, I, you know there's there's so many aspects of this of um, money is saying that uh, that is really kind of challenging us. I mean, there's all the there's a, several um, virtues that the, that the Catholic tradition has taught us uh, as to the proper use of money, such as liberality, which kind of informs us that the liberal man, the one who has, I know that's a word that kind of triggers a lot of people, but it's okay. It's liberal in a different context here. Um, that, li that the liberal man is one who's truly free um, from money and that he always knows um, what it's for, that money is a, just a placeholder. And so you need to know what the money is holding a place for um, instead of just continually stockpiling up um, funds in a general savings account. I mean, Christ tells us a parable about the rich fool who does that, and it doesn't go very well for him. Uh, and yet that is just co constantly always putting aside 10% so that our savings always balloon. That's that's considered a piece of cultural wisdom today. And yet it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's something that's taken down in the Gospels themselves. I mean, there's so many aspects, I would say, that kind of fall prey to um, so many aspects of our, our kind of monetary wisdom of today that uh, falls prey to um, biblical critique, and, and there's there's a handful of them for you. <laughs> yeah, and I know you have so many more. And I'd add on that not only is this idea of saving kind of this cultural uh, influence that we have, but at least in the context that I grew up in in the church, I grew up in kind of like a large non-denominational church. They taught mm -hmm. like financial peace classes from Dave Ramsey and like the, you know, <laughs> saving was taught as like not only just a, you know, cultural good, but almost like a Christian good. And then when yeah. we look at the message, like, I think there's so much confusion there. Um, and 
that it's really difficult for people that when they begin to hear you talk about things like, you know, retirement accounts or the stock market or any of these things, it just feels completely foreign to them, not only culturally, but they've never heard this from their pastors, their priests, they, they're just not hearing this anywhere. And I'd be curious, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, um, but I know one thing that came up and you you did a debate with trent horn over uh yeah. retirement and i remember reading uh the like essay you wrote afterwards and there was this point that there's there's not really bishops or really hardly anyone talking about this stuff these days as far as teaching about the sin of speculation or different things like that why do you think it is that this is these teachings on money are so dormant in the church today um yeah, it's 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 such an important question. I think that the um, answer, in part, is because we are all um, up to our eyeballs in the monetary economy, um, and that we are all worried about having to up and change our lifestyles. So there's these kind of funny things that happen, like the um, USCCB, the the United States. Um, uh, 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 bishops got together and, and wrote a document on kind of ethical investing. And um, w some things that they said is that you, like, you have to vote. Like, if you're going to be invested in the stock market, then you have to vote. Well, that means that you will, that mutual funds are completely not allowed then. <laughs> it's like, you don't have the ability to vote if you are only invested through mutual funds. And in fact, actually, if you are directly holding a company, then your vote actually is only a suggestion um, to the board of directors and it actually has no power um, either. Um, and for there's, clarity, there's a, you mean like voting in the company? Like not voting right, like, yeah. oh, okay, got it. Okay. Yeah, 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 voting in the company, I'm sorry. Um, and there's a lot on in, in corporate law on this, but there's a real separate, the way that the legal literature um, talks about it is a separation between uh, ownership and control. And uh, and this is it's very clear legally. I mean, there's just like no disputes on it. Nobody it, kind of outside the Christian world cares about this at all. I mean, it's just all settled and it's going swimmingly, you know, in many ways uh, for them. But within the Christian world, we'll say things, you know, the, the USCCB has said things like you have to vote. It's like, well, okay, I guess no Catholic can have a mutual fund then. And yet I'm not sure if that technical piece of knowledge is um, really clear in the minds of a lot of um, of churchmen, actually. So I think that part of the reason is that we all love money, but part of the reason is that our modern monetary economy is so complicated uh, that that it's hard to track um, some of these things. And so, and thus it's hard to then apply the principles that church has given us to um, what's going on today. So I, so I don't think it's all um, we're trying to, you know, justify our sin. I think it also is just really complicated. Yeah. There's so many layers here and as if, you know, finances themselves weren't complicated enough adding in, and I guess it shouldn't be like an additive, but, trying to align this with your faith and think theologically about it makes it increasingly complex, right? You have um, not just kind of legal considerations or financial considerations, but you're asking higher level questions. Just out of curiosity, because yeah. perhaps it'll elucidate a point uh, for people or a principle that they're not familiar with. Why is it that the Council of Bishops there are saying that 
you need to be able to vote? Like what's that connection between voting in the yeah. company and making the investment okay? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, so it really comes down to first um, principles here. I'll just say when, when you said like trying to understand the, what's happening financially and what's happening technically and then being able to value that uh, theologically is it a lot of times we'll um, kind of justify things theologically after we've already come to the conclusion that we like that that thing like for instance like the and this is no endorsement for for socialism at all but like absolutely not um but like a lot of like free marketers will say things like uh yeah like the free market allows us to to exercise our creativity um which which is like god's own creativity but that's clearly um already trying to put forward uh, theological principles that justify a position that we already have and and so when when the bishops do something like say that voting is important they're actually not making that mistake they're going right back to um labor mcsersons they're going right back to genesis 1 and which understands an intricate connection between ownership and responsibility and ownership and work so how do you how do you have a claim to own anything when god created the world he gifted it not just to some of us but to all of us so then how can i say that this little plot of land is mine well the answer that the tradition has given us is work that just as uh god kind of manifests himself in some ways in creation so that again reading the book of creation we can know something about god that, there, that his likeness is somehow reflected in, in everything that he made. So when we work and we transform something, our likeness is in the thing that we made. Uh, and so there's that likeness is part of our claim to it. This is, this is John Paul II's teaching in Labor McSersons. Okay, so that means that there's an intricate connection between ownership and work, but then also once you have a claim to it, what you've made is ultimately for the common good that it is that is still supposed to serve you who are part of the common good and the rest of the community and so um if you gave up your responsibility of the thing then you would actually of, of what you owned then you would actually have surrendered uh your charge to use what you have for the good of of others so it's very clear in the in the case of like a dog you know if i don't if i own a dog but then i don't train my dog i don't have responsibility over the dog not only would the dog potentially die but if he's not trained well he could go around and bite my neighbors you know and they would have every right then to shoot the dog and maybe even shoot me for failing to <laughs> train the dog well right that, that there is an absolute intricate connection between uh, ownership and responsibility. As, as the Venerable Fulton Sheen said, um, that we all think about the farmer who is, uh, has, has the right to ride his horse because it's his horse. But we um, also have to remember that he has a responsibility, the, the care and the feed him uh, too. And that, that defines all forms of ownership um, for within the Catholic tradition, and it supplies from um, that those first principles of of work and ownership uh, that, 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 that the church has taught. And so there's no difference then um, as it pertains to um, ethical investments too. If you if you claim ownership of it, you have some responsibility for it. 
which is completely different than the vast majority of investing. Like you said, that would take mutual funds essentially off the table for all Catholics. If you're following that principle of mm -hmm. to invest, you have to have some type of uh, vote in the company there. So, right, but I just want to clarify real, yeah, real go, quick. Please do. I, I just want to reemphasize that that is such a technical point that I'm not even sure that it's clear that mm. the bishops know that they're doing it in that document. So I don't want to say this is like universal teaching of, of the church. Uh, I, I just think that it's, it's you know, a point of, well, if we really take this seriously, it gets mm. really, I mean, the implications are pretty um, radical. Yeah. Yeah. And that's helpful that we're not necessarily like putting down magisterial authority on this, but maybe if we follow out the principles there and what they seem to be thinking that it could land yeah. you in a place like this. And yep. With that in mind and with kind of the scope of what we've talked about with money, I think there might be people out there who listen to some of your episodes, read some of your essays, uh, perhaps yeah. listen to this interview and say, like, this is compelling. Like, I think our financial system is broken. I think not just structurally at a large scale, but I think probably the way I'm handling my own finances mm -hmm. is broken, that I've swallowed kind of the cultural teaching wholesale. And I haven't really done the work of thinking theologically, thinking Christianly about these things. Where do they start? Because I imagine that's an overwhelming feeling. So if we were to, if you were to give them just like one piece of advice on maintaining perhaps that patience with this is a, a big problem, but also that persistence of this is something that we can't give up on. Where do they start? Yeah, million, I mean, no doubt in the chapel. You you start on your knees. Uh, you start in prayer, and um and and you just have to lay out in quite a meaningful and a terrifying way. Uh, your baptismal promise to, to the Lord again and saying, uh, I am wholly yours, uh, direct me. I want to see your face more clearly. Help me to be able to. Uh, that's that's where you start. Uh, I really genuinely believe also that we can't really have some radical financial change in our life if we're not living near friends and family. Um, and that that is that if money really does take the place for where love lacks, that means that we really need to cultivate real love um, and real connection with people. And so uh, to, to get up and leave where you are is uh, not a way of surrendering. It is a chance for you to begin to engage uh, for the very first time. And so. Um, there, so there might be some, just as the early church did, they got up and moved towards to be by other Christians. Uh, we're probably going to have to do exactly that again. And so I, I think that, um, you know, questions about divesting and such are, are critical and those should be done fairly early on in this process. Um, but prayer and friendship is, is really the start. I love that. And it brings us right back to where we started about building Christian communities and what, what the kingdom yeah. of God looks like here on earth. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. I want to wrap real quickly with the final four, which I do on all of my uh, episodes, which are just kind of four awesome. rapid fire questions uh, for the guests that you can answer in kind of a, a word, uh, a sentence, or however uh, much you want. Um, but first, what has been the most fruitful habit or spiritual discipline in your life? Oh, you know what? I just love chanting the Psalms. Uh, that is just uh, such such a joy. We, I do that every morning with my family, and we have a men's group here in town that does that together. Um, it's uh, it's you know the prayer book of Christ, and um, it I think gives you the groundwork to for mental prayer um, to be able to enter in more deeply into mental prayer uh, too. And it's also the you know one of the greatest points of unity with with friends and family too. I love that. Outside the Bible, what has been the most impactful book on your life? 
Oh man. Yeah. You told me this was coming. I, I don't know if I could answer that. It's uh, there's, there's just, um, I'll give you a different answer every, every week. <laughs> I'm sorry. Probably I would maybe say something like uh, the Sumo of St. Thomas, but that's such a generic Catholic answer. It's so lame. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take it. We'll take it. Yeah. So you're having coffee with your younger self, maybe like your early undergrad self. What's one yeah. piece of advice you give him for his future of theology? Yeah, you know, I because I did end up going all the way through and getting my doctorate in theology, I, I'd give kind of like a technical answer that probably doesn't apply to most people listening to podcasts. Um, but I would just say um, start soon as possible, um, really understanding the different metaphysical schools out there. I think that is something that I came to kind of later in grad school, and it has uh, just been such freedom to be able to think more deeply about um, various subjects and almost everything, actually. Um, and so to be able to uh, start that study earlier on would have been would have been great. I'm sure there's a whole fascinating interview you could do just on that topic. Yeah. <laughs> well, final question. Uh, this channel is called Gospel Simplicity. It's often pointed out that the, the conversations are a bit on the complex side, uh, prompting some people to say the channel should really be called Gospel Simpl uh, Complexity. But to bring it back <laughs> to the name of the channel, if you were to put in a sentence, what is the gospel? Yeah, the gospel is Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and true triumph over uh, Satan's sin and death. But that includes all temporal powers too, so that we don't just say that, you know, curios Caesar, that, 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 that Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord, and it's time to join his army. That's that's really the gospel in a nutshell, and, uh, and, and praise God that he has asked us to be his infantrymen. Amen. Well, Dr. Ramon, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a pleasure. And thanks to all of you who are watching this sometime in the future for your time as well. I don't take that lightly. I'll end as I always do by saying until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. And as always, go out and love God and love others because truly above all else, that will change the world.